Hope you guys had a good week in the Lord. We're going to be jumping into 1 Samuel this morning. Seems like every book I we study is my favorite book. It's like now I'm a big fan of 1 Samuel. Um, there was a commentary. We, we read through 1 Samuel a few years ago for one of those summer reads. You guys remember that? And there was a commentary by Davies. Um... Just a, it was just a little commentary that was suggested by Pastor Milton, and it was just fantastic. I should have brought it here. I'll, I'll, if I remember, I'll, I'll send you guys the link. Um, Davies, I think that's his last name. And uh, But we went through it as a family, and it was just really, really good. But let's go ahead and pray, and we are going to jump into Samuel. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. <clears throat> And how relevant it is, how much we are instructed and encouraged. We pray that you'd fill us with your spirit this morning. As we uh, continue, or for some of us, just begin this day of worship um, with the study of your word. And then as we move into our service and time of singing and preaching and giving. Also, as we just enjoy fellowship this afternoon for many of us with our small groups. Um, We just ask that you would receive the worship that we offer you today. Lord, that your people be encouraged, that people that don't know you, that that uh, they would their hearts would be open to the gospel. Um, We just thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. All right. Our little teaser question is, do you have a good luck charm? And uh, we may talk about good luck charms a little bit later. I want to pose a different question as I've been ruminating on the chapters this week. And that is, how do you use the doctrine of God's sovereignty? You know, the Puritans, when they would preach their messages in early both in the British Puritans but also early American history uh, the form of sermons is you would have the the reading of the text you would have an exposition of the biblical text and then you would have the section of the sermon called the uses of the doctrine or the use of the doctrine and that's kind of like what we would tend today call application But in Puritan sermons, they really did a good job in talking about right and wrong uses of doctrine. Um, Any truth that you have in the Bible can be used rightly and it can be used wrongly. And so this morning, one of the themes that we're going to focus on is the right and wrong use of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And I'm going to start with an illustration, and then we'll we'll move into the text. Years ago, I was uh, at a different church before I started coming to Cornerstone. I started coming to Cornerstone in 1993. Uh, but there was a gal that I was, uh, our church was ministering to, and and um, she had fallen in back into this relationship with an old unbelieving boyfriend. She knew it was... She shouldn't be dating an unbeliever. <clears throat> she knew that this was going to lead her into sin and and uh, into practices that were not going to honor and glorify the Lord. But part of her rationale was, <clears throat> why did God uh, bring my boyfriend to my workplace that day wearing the exact type of cologne that I love? Why would God do that to me? So here I am walking, following the Lord. Suddenly he brings my ex non-Christian boyfriend right into my workplace that day, wearing that tempting cologne in what was God to expect me to do. God could have kept that boyfriend out of my store and now we wouldn't be dealing with this problem. What is she appealing to? She's appealing to the providence of God and God's sovereignty but is she using his the doctrine of God's sovereignty in the way that it's intended to be used? 
I would argue no. Fast forward to a few years later, we actually had a a church discipline situation at Cornerstone uh, that <clears throat> we disciplined a particular individual out of the church. But the good news was is that several years later they repented. They came back to the church. They actually met with the elders and said, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge that what you guys were asking me to do was was right and biblical and what I did was wrong and unbiblical. But in the middle of the confession, this individual said this. But, you know, one of the things that I've realized is that because I've gone through these problems, there's certain things that I've grown in and I'm a better person because of this sin. If I'd have never gone through this sin, I probably wouldn't have learned X, Y and Z. That's a little trickier. But we stopped this individual and said, you know what? We appreciate the fact that you're trying to work through God's providence in this. But let's imagine a different scenario. Let's imagine that you would have followed the counsel that was being given to you. And where would you be today if you had followed that counsel? In a subtle way, this individual was trying to basically say that God led me through this sin. And now I'm a better person today because of the sin than I would have been otherwise. And we had to stop them and help them think through the right and wrong use of that doctrine. Let's give you one final scenario. A person like David. um, David sins with Bathsheba. Uh, God tells David that you will now warfare will never leave your household. And um, he confesses his sin. He repents of his sin after he's confronted by Nathan. And um, there are many good things that continue to happen in David's life. But there are certain consequences that follow him to his grave, correct? And so uh, there's one day where he's being run out of Jerusalem by his own son, Absalom. So he has to get out of his own palace and take off with his mighty men. And there's this very odd scene where a prophet-like character named Shammai is up on a a cliff hurling rocks down upon David and pronouncing curses on him and saying, you murderer, you murderer of Saul's sons. So Shammai is actually pronouncing curses on David that don't totally accord with with the truth of what God's word had said. Um, God was the one that brought Saul in and moved, I mean, brought David in and moved Saul out. And so the actual content of the curses were incorrect. But Shammai is still up here throwing rocks down upon David. Do you guys remember this scene? What do David's mighty men want to do in response? They say, let us go up there and we'll take this guy's head off. David has a very interesting response to this. He says, no, the Lord has sent him to buffet me. He acknowledged that in God's sovereignty, God had told him that warfare would never leave his household. And there were certain consequences while he had been forgiven of his sin. There were certain consequences that he would not escape. And so even though he did not acknowledge the truth of what Shammai was saying, he acknowledged God's sovereignty and providence in bringing this buffeting upon his life that Absalom was running him out of town, an ungodly son, and Shammai was throwing rocks on him. And God w- or David was seeing this as all coming from the hand of the Lord. And I want to suggest to you <clears throat> that that is the right use of the sovereignty of God, <clears throat> that there's times where we do make decisions in our past where we can look back and say, you know what? I wish I would not have done that. It's water under the bridge. The Lord has forgive me. I'm not going to overly obsess on things I've done in my past. At the same time, I'm going to accept the consequences of my past decisions as a goodness from God. And, and these are very difficult. These can be challenging lessons to learn. How do we use doctrine in life, day-to-day life, How do we use the sovereignty of God? And I want to suggest to you 
<clears throat> that when we look at what we're going to see here in the first four chapters, uh, there are some really amazing lessons on how to rightly or and wrongly use God's teaching or the doctrine that we see in the scriptures. So let's go ahead. Uh, let me say one thing before we move into our material. Just a reminder, next week is the beginning of the finance class. So if you're interested in this, we would encourage you to sign up online. And then um, it's going to be meeting right over here in 103. So again, that gets rolling next week. Uh, but let's go ahead and let's open up to 1 Samuel. Say it again. Yes, we'll still meet here. We're still going to be going through 1 Samuel. And um, and then Bill will be teaching over there. Yes, this will still be. Yeah, we'll still tape this. And uh, so if you, you can listen to it later if you want. And don't worry, there's, you know, Bill and I, we're not competing. We're not like, you know, wrestling in the back afterwards or something like that or trying to steal each other's people or <clears throat> this is all to serve you guys. So um, that would be a pretty funny scene to have Bill and I kind of in the background getting into a wrestling match or something. OK, so uh, let's do just a, a quick little review from last week because it will factor in a little bit this morning. Anything stand out to you guys? About last week. Yes. Oh, good. You didn't like it? Yeah, they try to create this conflict where Boaz is anti-Moabite, but then eventually he kind of moves over. Yeah. Why did I like it so much? No, that's a great question. You know, normally... I do tend to be very critical of movies that portray scripture. Um, but I guess over the years, my expectations have been blown away every time and time again to where now I have very low expectations of anything that comes out of Hollywood when they try to do something biblical. And so the fact that that movie had even a certain percentage of content from the Bible made me ecstatic. Um, but part of what I liked is the way that they really did their homework on Moabite culture and they brought in the Moabite worship. They did some things at the front end of that movie that would be completely unacceptable today from a political correctness standpoint. They really talked about the exclusivity of Judaism versus the Moabite worship. They did not shy away at all from child sacrifice in fact, they really brought the horror of that out. And uh, even though we don't know that Ruth was a priestess, perhaps not, I thought that kind of artistic decision to make her a priestess enhanced the conflict and um, made for some interesting storytelling. But yeah, when Boaz came out and tried to drown the Moabite guy, and you know, I was just kind of like, what is this nonsense? But also I thought the actress... I thought the acting was amazing to me personally. Um, and the lady who played Ruth, I think her name is Eden something. She was phenomenal. Uh, there's certain just uh, things that she did facially and just with her acting that is very difficult to communicate. There were certain things that she did without words that were just absolutely amazing to me. So I don't know. Normally I'm not always very, I wasn't real kind towards the Exodus with what's his name or it was that one that was Russell Crowe. I, I hammered that one. Yeah. Was that the Exodus? No, no. Yeah. Noah, I thought was terrible. Yeah. But you have to, in that one, if you understand that the writers weren't even really trying to tell the biblical story, they were going back to Gnostic tellings of the flood story. 
And then they w- added some weird things. But it wasn't even supposed to be a biblical uh, portrayal of the flood. It was a Gnostic portrayal of the flood. And once you understand that, then it makes sense what they did in that movie. <laughs> Not really. Yeah. Oh. Oh, could you send me a link or maybe I could, maybe we could do a Sunday school outing. I'll send you guys the link and pick a day and we'll say, Hey, everybody, you guys can, we'll give you an indulgence. If you attend the, uh, that particular showing of Ruth, a few less years in purgatory. Yeah. Ruby. Oh, they're going to Abraham and Sarah. Wow. Nice. Oh, do they? Okay, great. I haven't been to a, a production in a little while. That'd be great to see Ruth. But yeah, I can understand, Barbara, why you wouldn't like it. There was part part of me, there was things I just didn't like. But I got really kind of, maybe I got overwhelmed with the artistic film side. And maybe I compromised. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. There's one other thing you said, Barbara, or? It could be. I don't know. I do have a little. Not everybody knows this, but I do have a little bit of a right brain. Is it right brain? Kind of like artistic type of side to me. Where sometimes I'll watch things that my wife just thinks, "Why in the world are you watching this strange, depressing movie?" And I'll be like, "The cinematography is awesome," and she's like, "It's depressing." I know. That's why I like it. So anyway, <clears throat> all right. But anyway, yeah, so the, uh, Ruth, we're going to compare Ruth a little bit. Actually, Naomi to Eli here in a second um, as we as we look at the text. So what we're going to do is I think, are you guys going to just hit play? Okay, that's cool. So open up to 1 Samuel. Um, if you guys, Tori, if you wouldn't mind, we're just going to do chapter 1 and then stop. And then I think I'm going to read chapter two. And then we're going to play chapter three and four. If we could do that. <clears throat> so so open up to first Samuel. Let's let's do chapter one right now. We'll read through it. OK, thank you. OK, good. <clears throat> I just love biblical narrative. This is just a amazing tale and just even the way it's told. We see things that um, we can obviously relate to because we're human beings, but we're also dealing with literature that's about 3,000 years old in a completely different culture, and we see that, right? Um, <clears throat> so we've got the main characters, Elkanah and Hannah and Eli. And uh, what has caused, what's part of the conflict that we see in this historical narrative right out the gate. Yes, he doesn't have a baby and two wives. So remember when we're reading historical narrative, a lot of times it's going to report for us what happened. But there's a lot of times where the scriptures are not necessarily going to tell us um, exactly what should be the moral conclusion to every aspect of the narrative. What we do know is that Elka had, Elka had two wives, probably um, married Hannah first. She was not able to bear children. Um, according to the culture of this time, it wasn't uncommon at all, both in Jewish culture, but also in surrounding cultures. If you had a wife that was barren, to marry a second wife, the second wife has children, and then you have this rivalry that's that's now going on. According to to verse five, <clears throat> what is the ultimate cause of Hannah's barrenness? Sitting. Yeah, it says although the Lord had closed her womb. And then there in verse six, again, the Lord had closed her womb. 
Um, now you'll hear secularists and people that are that try to argue against Christianity. They'll make fun of these types of statements. Scientifically, we know why women cannot have children or why men are unable to produce children. And the Bible is such an unscientific, ancient book. It has no idea. And it just says the Lord closed her womb. Just like the Bible will say things like God brings the clouds to cause rain. We know that God doesn't cause rain. We, it has to do with atmospheric pressure and systems and all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> no, the Bible knows all that kind of stuff. But what they don't realize is that the Bible looks beyond merely what we would call second causes or second causation. The Bible is very comfortable with assigning second causes and what we call first causes. The second cause, this sec, the scripture doesn't really say. We do know that Hannah couldn't have children, and then later on she could have children. There's lots, you know, those of you guys, you know, and gals, as you've had children and tried to have children, and uh, you guys are aware of some of the peculiarities. Katie and I, we got married in 95 and we decided I wouldn't have done this now the way we did it but we decided that I needed to get mostly done with seminary before we would have our first child and um, I kind of regret that somewhat now but it's underneath God's providence and sovereignty but I'm not going to blame God for it Um, so but around my final year of seminary we said okay let's start having children and I just kind of thought you start to try having children and then you know a couple days later your wife says hey i'm pregnant and we all cry and or have we go rejoicing and so one week went by and two weeks went by and then a month went by and two months went by and we're kind of like i thought this nature is supposed to take its course here what's what is going on and um so we started to get a little concerned and then we talked to Dr. Kumi, Dr. Paul Kumamoto, and he gave some suggestions, which I will not talk about here, but if you, anybody wants to talk to me later, if you're having some issues, let me know. And so I put those, you know, we worked on that, and then uh, all of a sudden, Katie came out of the bathroom one day, she's crying, and it was a little blue strip, and uh, we were pregnant with Joshua. And so there were, there were secondary causes to that whole process, uh, but ultimately, we, we we're very comfortable saying the Lord gave us Joshua, right? We understand that, and so the Bible is very comfortable talking about the Lord closing her womb here. Now, what is the uh, at this point in Israel's history? Where are people going to worship the Lord? Shiloh. Okay. So this is pre-Davidic temple, right? The temple has not been built uh, in Jerusalem yet. So people are going to Shiloh to offer their sacrifices and so on uh, so many times of year. And so Hannah would go down year after year and she's crying out to the Lord in anguish. uh, The language here, pouring out her soul before the Lord. Eli's the the high priest at this time in Israel's history. And what is it that he he has a certain perception about her pouring her soul out before the Lord? What's his perception initially? Say it again. A wicked woman because she is What do you guys think about that? Yeah, Jennifer. Yeah. Uh, people have different takes on that. Again, this the, the narrative doesn't tell us she thought he or, or he thought she was drunk and here's what you should think about that. It just reports it. But it doesn't I think the narrative it seems like it's intending for us to see that as strange. Okay, so maybe, yeah, Judy's saying maybe he's actually seen this, that there's people that will show up at the temple drunk. Um, You can tell me, you could dismiss this if you think, Um, but 
isn't it true that a lot of times people will identify things in other people when there's sins in their own life or maybe in their own family? We know later in the narrative that his sons are not peaches and pie, right? And um, his sons are pretty bad dudes. And and so um, and yet Eli has not been willing to discipline them. And so now he's looking at this poor lady who's pouring her heart out before the Lord. And the first thing he's thinking is not, oh, I wonder what's wrong with this gal. What can I do to have compassion on her? It's, hey, chick, why are you coming to the temple drunk? You know, what are you doing? It just seems offensive to me. It, if if I, I, I could be wrong, but it seems like if I was there at the moment and I was observing, it would feel offensive for Eli to confront her that way. That's like kind of the first thing that he says to her. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. He does eventually pronounce a blessing over her, but it's, yeah, it's a little bit odd. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. Barbara. Hmm. Huh. Okay, so he's reacting, not responding. So he's just kind of reacting to the moment. Yeah. I, at, at the very least, I think we could say this. The initial narrative does not, from the very get-go, we don't get a positive impression of Eli. Would you guys agree with that? Uh, we don't walk away saying, wow, he, what an amazing guy that he told her that perhaps or rebuked her for being drunk. <coughs> Yeah, exactly. That's the other issue. Uh, So, okay, so she clarifies for him and um, and and then she she uh, she blesses or Eli blesses her. And and uh, and then she is the Lord opens up her womb and she has a child and names the child heard by God because the Lord had answered her. And. um and then, you know, she had been pretty diligent about going up to Shiloh year after year. Uh, but then <clears throat> she's like, well, I'm not going to go up to Shiloh this year. Let's wait until he's weaned. Elkanah says, that's fine, but make sure you fulfill your vow to the Lord. I'm not sure exactly how we should read that. I mean, you can understand, a, you know, Hannah is a mother. <clears throat> it kind of makes me wonder how long she took to wean him. Um, so you think so? <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, with Moses. Um, yeah, so I think the the general tradition during this time period would have been about anywhere between three and four years old or two to four years old. So maybe around there. Um, so that's another thing that you just think, well, isn't this just supposed to be natural? And then, it, well, my wife is getting... Uh, consultation nursing cons- consultants to help with the kids and uh so she uh so she weans him brings him up and um and hands him over to Eli and then they worship the Lord there so this is this is very strange to us this almost has the feeling of some buddhist kung fu movie where somebody brings a little kid up to some high temple and drops them off there for the sensei to train them. Uh, but again, we're dealing with ancient culture. <clears throat> um, she had made this vow before the Lord. Um, to me, I don't know about you, but when, if somebody would have accused me of drunkenness while I was in the middle of prayer, and if, and if they had sons that had the reputation of Eli's sons, I'd be a little reticent to turn my child over <clears throat> to this educational system, Eli, you know. And um, but she just had to trust the Lord. She had made the vow and uh, the Lord had answered the prayer. And so she turned him over and trusted the Lord. Yeah, Wade. Yeah. Totally. Totally. 
Yeah. 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 Yeah, totally. Yeah, so yeah, Wade brings up a great point. You know, we just got to remember the flesh and blood reality of here of Anna, a mother, Hannah, a mother who was really wanting children, and now she's turning this child <coughs> over to the temple and just, and uh, that's an amazing step of faith. Yeah, I think of my little guy, Samuel. You know, his name's Samuel, eight years old. You know, just bringing them. I mean, I wouldn't even take them to a boys' camp and drop them off for a week, you know. <coughs> um, but here she is dropping them off at a temple, and she's going to see him year after year, but here he is. And um, yes. 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 That's a yeah. It's an amazing point that Wade is bringing up that God is using all of these circumstances, even the the sin of El- Elkanah, Elkanah's other wife, to move Hannah to this place of just Lord. I want to worship you and I want to give everything to you, including any ch- children that you bring into my life. <clears throat> and so we do see God's providence, even even in the um, the trials and, and the sins that other people may be committing against us. And so then Hannah goes into this prayer and we're not going to take time on this prayer. I would re- encourage you to read it. Uh, however, um, I, I, I think there's lessons here that as we're praying and worshiping the Lord, um, this is very specific and it's not, it's, it's specific about what God has done. It's also specific about how God treats enemies. Um, and so I think we, our prayers should be willing to be informed by the prayers of the Bible. And, uh, there's certain themes and places that Hannah goes here that we might be afraid to go there in our prayers. And uh, but I'd, I'd encourage you to take a look at that and see what you think. Let's we're going to I'm going to read now at verse 12 and following. And I'll just read this and then we'll come back and do the audio for uh, chapter three. So let's start in verse 12. <clears throat> so now we have a an, another scenario. Uh, we've, we're still in the same time period, but now we're going to focus on back to, to Eli and his sons. Now, the sons of Eli, I'm reading from a New King James, were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with the three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling, and then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. Uh, so they did in Shiloh. Uh, to all the Israelites who came there. Now, there's nothing wrong with what's been said so far. This was actually a, re- a relegator, or it's in the law that the priest had the right to take the shoulder, so to speak. Or this is literally where the idea of potluck comes from: is stick the fork in, you pull out, and you get what you get. I will sometimes use this doctrine as a pastor. I, I don't know if this is the proper application, but sometimes. Something will fall to me as a pastor. Somebody leaves something behind in our our refrigerator in the kitchen. I haven't brought my lunch. I look in there and find something that's unmarked. And I'll go to pastors like this and say, well, you know, I'll take my shoulder piece. I'm joking, but. um, But yeah, so this was a this was a common practice. Nothing wrong with this idea. This was just how the priests were able to eat and survive. However. Continue on. Um, also, before they burn the fat, the priests, and I don't really like also, that probably should be however. In verse 15, what do you guys have for that conjunction in different translations? Moreover, Moreover that's better. But even, okay, okay, that's a little better. New King James has also, I don't really like that. Uh, before they burn the fat, uh, the priest would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give me meat for roasting. To the priest, and he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. 
almost sounds like Gollum there, but if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. This doesn't really sound like Pastor Milton, right? Or somebody, um, I mean, so you can just imagine Pastor Milton, you're walking into the church and he's like, give me a dollar. What, what, what for? Well, give it to me. I'm going to take it by force. I think you'd find another church, right? But at this time, all you had was the, the community, local community church of Shiloh, right? It was just Shiloh Bible Church. So that's all you had. And so you went to Shiloh Bible Church. Um, Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For men aboard the offering of the Lord. No fear of God here. But, and I like that conjunction choice. Uh, Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. That would be garb of a priest. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little rope. That's just so cute. Bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give to your descendants from the woman uh, for the loan uh, that was given to the Lord. And uh, then they would go home, go uh, to their home. Uh, so, you know, Eli would recognize that they'd come and the sacrifice that they'd made and he would pronounce a blessing over them. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So here again, we could talk about second causation, but first causation is the Lord opened her womb and gives her five children. And so the Lord uh, blesses her, visits her. And then we have Samuel growing up uh, before the Lord. Verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. And he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Know my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another... God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Now, that is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. There is so much stuff going on in verse 25. It could take us quite a while to talk about it. But I'm just going to we're going to go straight to the punch here about first and second causation. Let's look back at the top of verse 25. Eli says, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? He's acknowledging human responsibility. He's he's trying to rebuke his sons, at least verbally, for their sins. Nevertheless, they would not heed the voice of the father. So they when you hear the word heed, this is kind of the same idea of hear, O Israel. It's like. Listen with the intent of obeying. They would not listen with the intent of obeying. So from the language there, the implication is, are they responsible for their actions? Yes, they would not listen to Eli. They should have listened to Eli, but they chose not to. They're using their volition. They're hearing his, the words of their father, and they are choosing not to heed, not to obey. But then the Bible tells us why the first causation reason why they did not obey because the Lord desired to kill them. So in this verse, and we see verses like this throughout the whole Bible, we have human responsibility. We have volition that people can and will be held accountable for, but we have first causation of God doing things in his providence without violating their volition. Um, we've talked about this in the past. Um, we call it divine compatibility. The fact that human beings are responsible for their choices. They make real decisions. And yet God is completely sovereign over everything that happens. And I don't, there's for us, there's almost no other way to explain this. We can't do this. We're not human. We're not God. We're human beings. We're creatures. But God, who is the creator 
can move in such a way to where people are making volitional choices that they will be held accountable for. And yet God, how else can you read this other than to say God moved sovereignly to not allow them to listen to their father because God had other things in mind, namely to kill them, to pass his judgment upon them for the sins they had done. This is a challenging verse, admittedly, but there should, if we're really serving the true God of the universe who is sovereign over all, there should be differences between him and us, right? And, um, and so this is just a crazy verse. May this never be said of any one of us. May God protect us from it's ever being said from any one of our children. But no doubt God is sovereign. And this no doubt is not the only time in the history of the universe that God did such a thing where he says, I am not going to allow such and such to happen because I have greater judgment in mind for that person. That's spooky. It kind of harkens to some of the Psalms that say, why do the wicked prevail? Why God, when we look out at the wickedness that we see people prospering and to which part of God's answer is because I am building up my case and judgment against them I am delaying so that the wrath will be greater upon their heads. That's spooky, right? How many times in the Old Testament do you say God say, delaying judgment, saying the cup of their iniquity is not full yet? 400 years, right? Abraham was, was told 400 years before the fact that there's coming a time when this, the iniquity of this land will be filled, and then I will bring judgment upon the peoples of Canaan. And so we see both the goodness and the severity of God throughout the scriptures. But then contrast that with the very next verse, 26. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and men. This is meant to be by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Our author is contrasting the sons of Eli with Samuel. These guys, the Lord's intending to kill them. And here Samuel is growing up in favor with the Lord men. In fact, <clears throat> many commentators say it's no accident that the New Testament picks up the same kind of language and, and refers to Christ in the book of Luke. Remember over there in Luke? And so Samuel is, he's a human, he's imperfect, he's sinful, but he's a type, a pointer to this future prophet, Jesus Christ. Let's continue in the, the chapter then a man of God uh, came to Eli and said to him, this is a very interesting character. We're, we're given no name. It's the man of God. Thus says the Lord. So as soon as someone says, thus says the Lord, if they're really, a, and they're already identified as a man of God, what's about ready to follow? What would we call this kind of speech? Prophecy. So it, this guy's been identified as a man of God. He stands up and he says, thus says the Lord. We're about ready to hear prophecy. Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me? to make yourself fat with the best of the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and your house and the house of your fathers would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me <clears throat> shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house. So that there will not be an old man in your house and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place. And despite all the good which God does for Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from before my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of the house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. 
So a prophecy, part of the nature of prophecy is something is pronounced directly from the Lord. And then there's a sign that's typically given. Here's how you know that I'm not a, a quack. I'm going to predict something that will be very objective that nobody can deny. Unlike some of the quacks that we see today that are claiming prophecy, these folks give undeniable predictions. In one day, both of your sons are going to die. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. That is the sermon that is the prophecy delivered to Eli. This does not have a fun, happy application with a three verse hymn at the end. This is a very depressing message. And at this point, we don't really hear Eli's response. We know that Eli has delivered the message, but we're not really sure what he's going to say yet. But I think we're going to get a little bit of a clue of Eli's, how he tends to respond to the Lord in the next chapter. Could we go ahead and play, Tori, the, uh, the clip for chapter three? So we're going to, now we're going to listen to chapter three and we'll come back and wrap this up. Okay, that's good right there. <clears throat> okay, amazing, amazing turn of events, amazing chapter. Um, many of you, I'm sure, have heard this story several times. So we have a period in Israel's history again where there's just not a lot of prophecy. We had just heard from this man of God, but now we find out that that's kind of an oddity. And so the word of the Lord or prophecy is actually pretty rare. Uh, Samuel's sleeping near the ark. That is not incidental. We're going to hear more about the ark in the next chapter. And so he's there before the Lord, before the ark. When it says he didn't know the Lord yet, what does that mean in this context in verse 7? Yeah, so he he hadn't heard his voice yet as a prophet. I don't think this, this doesn't, have the same idea um, of, of other places where somebody is against the Lord or like it says, it uses a similar phrase of Eli's sons. They didn't know the Lord. That means they're not worshiping. They're not following. There's no relationship with the Lord. In this case, Samuel, he doesn't seem to know the Lord by experience yet as a prophet. Yeah. Nate. Yeah, it could be. That's uh, a good question. I guess it could be that this should be seen as a couplet where know and reveal should be viewed as synonymous. Um, but <clears throat> I think there seems to be a clear contrast between Eli's sons and Samuel. And so I don't know that we should read in know the Lord in the same way that we you or I might use that term today. So if you and I are talking about somebody, hey, do your parents know the Lord? That would mean, are they Christians, right? Have they repented of their sins? I don't know that we would use it in the same way. Here, Samuel has clearly been involved in the sacrificial system. He's involved in the daily worship. He's learning about how to do the duties of a priest. Um, So I don't know. So definitely, I don't think you would imply by this that he is against the Lord the way Eli's sons were when it says there, they didn't know the Lord. It wasn't that they were lacking in factual knowledge. It's that they were against the Lord. So clearly that's not being meant here by Samuel. Yep. Yeah, I have yet too. I'm not, I'd, I'd have to look at the, I'm not sure what the original says. Yeah. Yeah. 
But yeah, the clear point is, is he, as a prophet, he hadn't yet heard the voice and didn't recognize his voice. Yeah, Justin. I would assume so, but I'd have to go back and look. It's a good question. I'd go back and check it out. Hebrew, it tends to be less precise. There's not as many words in biblical Hebrew as in biblical Greek. And because of that, there's a lot more questions, interpretive questions a lot of times when you're reading your Old Testament. It's just not as precise of a language. We don't know. Yeah, there's no evidence of how old he really is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, he's around people that don't know the Lord, but we've already had narrative indicators that say he's been growing in in favor with God and man. So there's already been lead ups to this point that indicates that he is to be viewed as different from the sons of Eli. Yep. Yeah. Over there in Luke. Yeah, totally. Grown up in the stature of God and men. So it seems like we're definitely meant to view Samuel, regardless of where he's at in his relationship with the Lord. We're meant to view him as different. Um, and then he, the Lord does begin to speak with him. And, <clears throat> you know, from our viewpoint, it's somewhat of a cute story to start. You know, he doesn't realize the Lord's talking to him. Um, but then if if we're really trying to, like, do true to life stuff, I mean, you know, the Lord reveals this very disturbing message. Samuel's afraid to talk about it. And then Eli does, again, this kind of strange turn to me. If you don't tell me everything, it's going to happen to you, buddy. And who knows how old this kid is, but let's say he is an eight-year-old. You know, isn't that kind of like, I mean, today we would almost call that kind of like verbal abuse or something, you know. Um, You know, so Samuel's like, all right, I'll tell you everything. And here's here's where I want to kind of end things um, is over there in verse 18 is Samuel now at, at least for the second time. I mean, Eli, he's hearing this message first from the man of God. Now from Samuel, his response is it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And on the surface, that sounds like a pretty good response. He's heard this prophecy about how God's going to bring judgment upon his sons. And he says, all right, well, this is the Lord's will. Uh, I trust in God's sovereignty. Let the Lord do whatever is good to him. I want to at least suggest to you guys, you can research this this week, is, is that really the response that God was after in Eli's life from, the, from a human volitional perspective? And I want to suggest to you, probably not. We have examples all over the scripture where God says, I'm going to come and bring judgment like in Nineveh. But guess what? Nineveh repents and then God withholds his judgment. Um, Who was it? What was the king that he added extra years to his life? That was uh, Hezekiah, was it? Um And so this is kind of that whole, how should we use our understanding of God's sovereignty? Um, Was God going to kill Eli's sons? From the text, it seems pretty apparent that God was going to bring judgment upon them. But what was he trying to get out of Eli at this point? Would it not be, hey, instead of just giving some verbiage to your sons, you need to get them out of there remove them put somebody else in their place bring he had the power to bring the hammer down on these guys but instead he stands back and kind of hides underneath the sovereignty of god oh god's good he's going to do what he wants to do and um you know i i I think i've fallen into that trap in the past and i've seen other people do that as well that they make some choices that were just bad choices i i remember years ago um, being in a counseling situation where uh, a spouse had committed adultery on their spouse and um, and then they were found out 
and they had gone through the motions of repentance and um and and the wife was just having trouble forgiving and really struggling and in the middle of the counseling <clears throat> the husband was like hey you need to forgive me and get over it the lord's forgiven me and by the way this is all underneath god's providential plan anyway this was meant to happen and i could have just got the boxing gloves out and said handed them over to the wife and said hey let's, why don't you take a couple swipes here you know that's not how you use the sovereignty of God. And and so I think in this in this text, we'll end with this. Eli, I think, is an example. And again, you can do some research and pray. And I think an example of how not to use the sovereignty of God. We clearly see God's providence all over this text. But we also see an example of how to be careful not to use God's sovereignty as an excuse for your own sin and as a reason to not use your choices to repent of sin. You know, go backwards to Naomi, however. And Naomi is experiencing God's sovereign hand in her life. She's experienced the bitterness. She's struggling. And yet she's reaching out to the God who is in charge, who has brought this this affliction into her life. And yet she's choosing, she's making certain choices, right? Her and Ruth are working together to improve their situation. They're approaching Boaz. They're being proactive in their lives. And then they're seeing God move the pieces, uh, even using their choices for good. This is mysterious, I know. But I think the bottom line is, is when we're looking at things in our past that are completely out of our control, we just say, you know what, I Lord, I just trust your hand. I don't understand everything that's going on, but I trust you. If there's things we've decided in our past that that have created consequences for ourselves and for others, we own that. We say, this is in the past. I'm not going to sit here and dwell on every all the bad things I did in the past. If you, Once you hit a certain age, we're all going to have regrets, right? We can sit around and just, just regret ourselves into the grave. But that doesn't mean we don't also own certain consequences there's things i've done in my life as a 48 year old man that i can never take back and and there are certain residual consequences that i just have to own at this point in my life and at the same time i can make decisions now that can be positively can positively influence influence my future right i can own my sinful choices before people i've sinned against and humble myself before them. I can acknowledge God's goodness to me. And why is he so good to me? Though I've made some bonehead decisions in my life. Um, and so these, this is what we're talking about. When we talk about the right uses of a doctrine. How do we think through what the Bible clearly lays out to us? And it, it takes wisdom and we do it in community. So let's pray. If there's questions, you guys can come up afterwards. We'll talk more about it. Next week, we'll continue on uh, in the book of, of Samuel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your kindness and goodness to us this morning. Um, you are the God who is in charge of absolutely everything. You do whatever you wish. And, uh, and we acknowledge that your choices are right and good. We acknowledge that you are the one that will judge your enemies and yet you have compassion upon uh, thousands um, we thank you for your compassion and mercy upon us we pray father that you'd help us to appropriately think about our past <clears throat> that we would not dwell in the arena of regret and understand forgiveness at the same time help us not to deny the responsibility that we have for decisions we've made and to own that <clears throat> under underneath the cloak of your love and help us to respond appropriately when we need to repent um, that can, so that we can really drink in the full benefits uh, and desires that you have for us. Thank you for this, the, the practicality of your word, uh, the beauty of it. And we pray that by your spirit we'd be able to put it into practice and worship you because of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, awesome. We will see you guys next week as we talk about Israel rejecting God as king and King David coming to the throne next week, that'll probably be my favorite passage in the Bible.